Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so happy to be sitting here today with Shelly Oria. She is the author of New York One, Tel Aviv Zero, and her fiction has appeared in the Paris Review and elsewhere. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, where she teaches at the Pratt Institute and has a private practice as a life and creativity coach. Today, we are here to talk about her new book called Indelible in the Hippocampus. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you, Maris. Tell me about this book. How did how did this come about? Well, this book came about um, about two years ago when a time I think many of us remember well. Very. Um, yeah. So shortly after the Harvey scandal broke. And I was – at the time, I had just finished uh, – a little bit before that, I had just finished a short story that I hadn't thought of as a Me Too story when I wrote it because there, we weren't thinking about it in those terms, right. most of us, back then. Um, but then once everything broke, I sort of realized that it kind of was. And I honestly thought – so the beginning of the story isn't really about – it doesn't put me in a great light when I tell it honestly because I think I was kind of being – an opportunist in a way, I, because we <laughs> assumed back then, I think most of us did, that this whole thing was well, going to be a week, you know, like right, maybe 10 right, days. Right. So I thought, let's get this, this baby, like it's the perfect time for this, for this baby that I just finished working on. Let's get it out. And so I just, um, approached a few editors and one of them was, uh, Christina Kearns, who was executive director of McSweeney's at the time. Right. And this just started a conversation between us, um, because Christina was saying, you know, who am I as a publisher and editor if I'm not contributing to this conversation yes. in a big way? And so, yes, I want to publish this story, but it's not enough. I want to, I want to make a book. And we started talking about that. And soon after that, she asked me to be the editor and I was thrilled. And so you have a variety of contributors. I do. A do. wonderful <laughs> variety. Some of I my favorites so. on here. Um, how did you go about? deciding who would contribute. I mean, I love that this is a collection of writing about Me Too, but it, there's fiction, there's poetry, there's nonfiction as well. Oh, yes. That's that's a big one for me. It felt very important. I mean, for whatever reason, we can maybe try to speculate or discuss yes, why, yes. but for whatever reason, it seems to me that um, whenever there's a timely topic in a book that comes out about that timely topic, that book is going to be nonfiction is going to live in the sphere right, of nonfiction, right. especially if it's an anthology, it's going to be an anthology of essays. Um, and there's a world in which that makes sense. I can make the case for that. But I also feel like it, for me, it doesn't. I want to live in a world where we respond artistically in all forms right. and receive art in all its forms when we're in a crisis, which I do think that we are on so many levels, but also in the context <laughs> yeah. that we're talking about right now. Um, and so it felt very important to me, again, not to put myself, to be honest, I think I was also thinking as a fiction writer. And I have, right. I have also published nonfiction, but I am, I predominantly write short fiction. And so that was probably back, back there too for me. But I do think it is, it feels bigger than that. Um, and so that's why it felt important, um, to make this book multi-genre. And I, I do feel like both as a writer and a reader, I process things both through fiction and through nonfiction. Yeah. Most and of us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's helpful. I imagine to be writing about this topic, I imagine that fiction gives you a little bit of freedom. Um, I oh, know for that, sure. that, you know, Caitlin Greenidge starts out the collection mm -hmm. um, with this lovely, horrible, wonderful piece about how we structure conversations 
around our own trauma mm-hmm. and how how incredibly difficult that is. Right. And um, I feel like fiction is a nice way to uh, get around that. I know. That's – I mean, you bring up an important point. I think that um, – in the galley that you read, you may have not noticed, but um, or maybe it wasn't in the galley. Maybe it was in the PDF of the galley. At some point, there was so we labeled all the pieces to make yes. sure that yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's that we're here. being very transparent and clear, so that there's no confusion about which is an essay and which is a short story, and even which is a poem, even though that's pretty uh, visible on the page. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But so we took care with that. But then in, I can't remember. At some point along the way, um, we had a couple of uh, little errors. Um, in that labeling, and one oh. of them, one of them was mine, and it said nonfiction. Yeah, I don't think it's in the galley. I think it's in one of the, no, PDF, no. the early PDFs of the galley. And so uh, I didn't even notice it. Which there's so many stories for me in this book <laughs> right. where I just like I feel so such a ridiculous uh, sense of responsibility for mm. for all of it and for all the contributors that I often forget to check my own piece in it. Um, <laughs> and that even the forward, but the forward I've paid more attention to my own. St- Poor little story that started the whole thing. I always forget to check it when it's I'm the supposed to check It's the very last story in the yeah, collection. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> and so in that story, the narrator um, murders men, for one thing, mm-hmm. like just for kicks, kind of. Sure I mean, does. to overcome her own trauma. But um, And so when, when that was labeled nonfiction, <laughs> when you sent it out, That's tough. I got concerned for a minute there. Um, <laughs> someone is going to come knocking on my door. But uh, yeah, it is, it is fiction. But so that's sort of to your earlier point. I think that's um, that's one thing, right? Like that woman's story that for whatever reason lived in my head for a while. Um, I couldn't have told that story in any other form. Um, and I couldn't have – for me, couldn't have approached what I'm trying to approach or examine um, in that story any other way. And and I, I feel like a common theme I've heard in the past couple of years is when I talk about fiction – with a woman that the Me Too movement is is concurrent and it happens to be, you know, a funny coincidence, but how much of this is even coincidental because I feel like we're all reckoning on, on a bigger level. Oh, for sure. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Yeah. Um, both, yeah, the way you put it is sort of a zoomed out, uh, succinct way of looking at it that I think is exactly accurate. But I think – we can uh, be even more sort of um, specific about it and just say, you know, things like the the tapes that came out. Like I think women were – so many women were so appalled that after – that those tapes, the Trump tapes, mm-hmm. made no difference at all. Grab them by the pussy tapes. Exactly, yes. those. <laughs> um, and the fact that we then elected the pussy grabber um, in chief I think made a lot of women – um, have all kinds of very strong feelings yes. of enough, um, in a collective way, in a very powerful way that, that started, um, the conversation we've been having for two years. I, I heard women at the time even say, Oh, I'm reminded of an ex. And, and, and it, certainly they mm-hmm. weren't comparing Trump to any romantic, you know, <laughs> interest they had, but, but there is that, that kind of abusive sounding, mm-hmm. uh, entitled, um, thing that I wonder if if Trump wasn't president, if the Me Too movement would have moved forward. I know. Quite I've as... thought about that quite a bit too. 
Um, I mean, of course, we'll never know, but I do think that there's a strong connection that, that we do know in the, in our world, in our reality as we know it, whatever the hell that even means. <laughs> yes, days, but yes. in the reality we know in our realm of it, um, there's a strong connection between, um, between this administration and everything that we've gone through as a result of this administration so far and the Me Too movement. And of course, the title of this collection comes from what Dr. Christine Blasey Ford mm-hmm. said, um, indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter yes. from Brett Kavanaugh and, um, all of his charming Mark friends. Judge, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I absolutely feel like that was another point in history when, Women I knew were were traumatized. Oh yes, yes. I mean, I know uh, it. It was such a strange. I mean, we should maybe say strange. It's we we're getting used to it, but it was at the time a strange experience for me. Even like uh, maybe a year and a half at the time into working on this book, and still with the Kavanaugh hearings. I found it hard for two days to share uh, aisle space in the supermarket sure. uh, with men. Like, sure. and I'm not, that is not my experience. Yes, no. There's many men in my life that I love dearly. Um, and, you know, um, for those, for the, for at least two days around that time, I just could not. I had a work meeting with, um, two men who I love, who I was collaborating with, and I was, I just canceled. And I was being honest about it, which felt important too. I was yeah, like, I'm not going to yeah. say that I'm sick. I am sick, but it's not that good. <laughs> right, right, right. I am sick, sick of this culture. Yes. Um, and I just told them the truth. I said, I cannot bear the voice of men right now. I cannot get on Skype with you. We were working through Skype and see your <laughs> lovely faces. I'm going to probably be happy to do that in a few days. And okay. today I need to cancel. Like that was, um, so yeah, that was, and I know everyone, every woman in my life, every woman I was talking to, that week, everyone was um, on sort of a scale on a spectrum of traumatized and suffering, you know, from from maybe my mild description of like, I can't share space with men right, right. now to something really, really triggered. And and I, I do think uh, my own experience, at least with Me Too, is that I've been reassessing so much of what's happened in my own life. Um, and I'm not the victim of a major crime. I'm just someone who thought that everything that, um, every aggression or microaggression that, that I received from men was normal or like mm-hmm. what, what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's really amazing to get to take stock and, uh, Think about what what I was uncomfortable with at the time, and why I should have, could mm-hmm. have, and should have listened to that voice in my gut. I think that is uh, so much of it for so many women, and I and I think maybe on a different level, women um, uh, who are a little bit older. Um, because they have just more years yeah. of just yeah. uh, taking a lot of bullshit and being told that that's just normal and okay. So I think for all of us, that's the reckoning in a way. Like something yes. flipped and, ev- and all these experiences from so many years since most of us were 11 or 12, if not before. Yeah. Um, of just some of them daily, some of them multiple times a day, some of them more rare, some of them for some of us haven't happened. But but the the whole sort of array of shitty to traumatic, basically, yes. experiences um, have come up for a lot of women. Like women have been taking stock and saying like, oh, okay, that wasn't okay and that wasn't okay and that wasn't mm-hmm. okay. And when you think about that list, like of course two years in we haven't begun because we're like listing things that have been happening for decades 
Um, I mean, much more than that, but in our personal lives, I mean. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's funny that, you know, you mentioned that you thought this would be a quick news cycle. And I think that we all have our lists and it's going to mm-hmm. take, I don't know, years, years to, to, Possibly forever, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another thing I get asked a lot these days about the what next. And of course, that's a very important conversation. I have, I mean, and question that I have no answer to. (laughs) Because, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just a writer person. (laughs) Like, I don't, um, which I, yeah, I keep saying and emphasizing, like, I have no answers. I only have my own opinions and hopes. um, And and those hopes in this context is that we do get to, um, to legal and institutional change through this conversation. But the one thing that has really come up for me when I'm being asked this question is that there's something I don't think I think most people asking the question don't mean it that way at all. But there's something almost dismissive of the of the storytelling um, in its most radical sense. When we ask the what next, there's like a presupposition there, I think, that we've done that. Right. Um, and that now we should move on to the next stage, which I think we should. But that first stage is we've ongoing. Barely. It's never. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've barely scraped the surface. And it's never, to my mind, never going to be not radical radical um for for anyone to tell to tell that type of story and and so then what do we say to the men but also the women mm-hmm. who say that me too has gone too far already i sh- probably shouldn't say on the air what i would say to that <laughs> okay, um <laughs> Uh, but I think part of what what I'm hoping that this book can do is engage in conversation. Um, you mentioned, you know, the multi-genre. There's all kinds of stories, uh, both in artistic form, but also I think stylistically. Like yes. some some are just funny, some are sarcastic, some are more like think pieces in a way mm-hmm. with uh, what, what I think is gorgeous language, but still sort of um, involve more the that type of discourse or conversation, engage in that type of conversation. Others are very personal. Essays, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think that one of my hopes for this baby about to come out into the world in a week is that um, that it can engage many, many people in that have maybe struggled with um, exactly what you were just asking me about. So people who have said, well, isn't that enough? And haven't we heard enough? Um, maybe can find something here that can answer that question for them or get their interest in any way. Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk about a few specific pieces? I, there are such a, there's such a great range of contributors because there mm-hmm. are women I've known and admired for years, and then a couple of people I wasn't familiar with, mm-hmm. but who are wonderful. Do you have any favorites? <laughs> oh, ah! Do not do okay, that. Okay, yeah, to me. no, no, no. Um, why <laughs> no, don't we say no favorites? Um, <laughs> but what I can say, well, maybe um, we're talking about sort of different types mm-hmm. of diversity that felt important yes. to me in this collection. Yes. So I think another one that maybe is uh, one or two of the names that you may not know um, is Keto Ziegler mm-hmm. and Jolie Holland, um, and so. Uh, oh, keto. I know Jolie Holland. Oh, you do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're smiling because you know. Uh, so that's exactly my point, right? Yes. So, so she's an incredible musician. She is. Um, and Keto's a visual artist, um, also an incredible um, 
artist in, in every way. And so that was another thing. I sort of felt like and still feel like I would have needed like 10 or 12 books to do everything I really set out to do and sort of have really include, be as inclusive as I was trying to be in this, um, in this book. But, um, you can have a series later. <laughs> it's just right. book one. <laughs> yeah. And it hasn't been taxing or exhausting at all. So that's good. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> emotionally and, <laughs> yes. yeah, and in every way. Um, but yes, but so, um, so that was another thing. I sort of felt like, oh, can we not have everyone be a writer, which I guess is a weird thing to say for a book, but I still wanted a couple of voices there, uh, from people who aren't, who have written, sure. but aren't, uh, predominantly writers. Um, and so those are two that I can highlight in that respect. Um, another sort of, another one I would highlight here is, um, a gorgeous, uh, beautiful, heartbreaking. Um, I don't. I've run out of adjectives at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But um, piece by Honor Moore. Um, mm. And I mean, whenever you include Honor's work, you you uh, you do well to do so. Whenever you read her work, you do well to do so. But in right. the context of what I'm talking about now, I think um, one group, or it's not a group, is probably the wrong word. But one category we often neglect. Um, to include when we're talking and thinking about inclusivity um, is just the anyone who may suffer from the results of ageism. And so anyone who's right. older and I, and especially for this, for the context of me too, it felt so important to me to include um, writers who can speak to or write to experiences that happened before um, you or I were born. Right. And so, um, so that's another one that um, I, won't say and I shouldn't say one of my favorites and it's not <laughs> I love all of them I know that you love but, all of them um, I really do though yeah but um but but yeah that's that's a piece that I keep um reading and rereading and um I think there's also something about uh, both honor and Paisley Rechdahl who's not um in your galley because that mm. incredible um nine, nightingale a gloss is the essay and it didn't make it in time for the galley but it's in the it's in the Ooh, book tell me about it then. um but so but those are two – the point that I was uh, going to make is that um, I think those are the two – Honor and Paisley are two of our writers who've contributed essays to the anthology who have also written poetry. Um, in Paisley's case, I think she's predominantly um, a poet or perhaps she identifies both as a nonfiction writer and a poet. But I think that is just something that's a uh, style and a sensibility in the mm -hmm. writing that I always respond to viscerally you know when you read uh the prose of a poet Absolutely. that is just something that cuts through yeah it just yeah my skin like it just get, goes for the heart kind of thing and did you have a, a call for submissions how did, how did the right i did sort work? of skip that part of your question earlier i think when <laughs> people ask that it's so funny to me you may you might share that experience um i think it's the i mean for a lot of us writers like you know, we, we know a lot of writers. Right. So and you I just reach out to your network. And it's, and it's, you know, and I don't think, um, I don't think it's even unique. I think, you know, doctors know doctors. Right, of course, <laughs> like writers of course. just know writers. I do think that maybe because, um, I curated and, uh, hosted a reading series for five years. Right. Um, and I, um, co-directed the writers forum at Pratt for seven years. And both of these jobs meant, 
um, a lot of interaction with a lot of writers in a setting where I got to know their work and got right. to fall in love with their right. work. So maybe my kind of list um, is, is especially big in that regard. But my point is that the challenge was to narrow it down. Like I think at one point in the early days of this project, my list of who I wanted to reach out to was over 100 names. Oh, sure. And I could have – it would have been an easier task to just keep going with that list rather than <laughs> – like I was sort of pushing the day when I would have to start narrowing it down because um, that was the hard part really. Sure. So no, we didn't we didn't put out a call, which um, a part of me sort of regrets that because, again, I would have needed 10 books. Like a part of me is so curious <laughs> right, about right, the work right, so right. we would have gotten that way. Um, but there were so many people that I knew um, I just wanted to – to to read their works on on this topic. Yeah. And I, I so the the book will come out very soon. Yes. And you'll be doing some readings and events around oh, them. Yes. And yes, many. And, and I'm which has been an, an incredible experience, honestly, is planning both my tour and something we've been calling um, in McSweeney's community events, which was a concept that interesting at McSweeney's came up with um, for this, and it's it's been so um, touching and and, um, and and exciting, and um, a lot of a lot of other emotions came up for me in the process of sort of curating these lineups in a bunch of different cities, and so I'm going on tour to many to many places, but. But there are a bunch of places too, um, like Austin, for instance, Spokane, um, that where um, there's just an event happening where a local writer just sort of volunteered to help us organize and oh, then other lovely. writers volunteered to read. And they're all going to read a little bit from their own work alongside their own selection from Indelible and kind of celebrate the book, even though no, we don't have a uh, contributor base there. And those are cities I'm not – I wasn't able to include in my tour. So that's that's an exciting thing that's happening. Uh, uh, and have you have you considered the response of of the people in the audience? Um, in the audience, in the various audiences, in the various audiences, <laughs> not just McNally Jackson. <laughs> um, yes, but not too much. I think I try not to overthink in general, and that's the sure. that line from my bio that you read about the creativity coaching. <laughs> Um, I think, Ooh. you know, the kind of process product divide, my creativity coach um, is very aware of that and staying kind of in process and not thinking of product. So to me, thinking of audience response definitely falls under product. And of course, we all have these thoughts, but my work is to release them and then oh, that's great. deal with whatever when it when it comes, if it comes. But I think especially with this topic, I mean, I can spend days and weeks and months sort of dreading and anticipating and thinking about all kinds of people's feelings. And oh, but see, I was coming at this from a more positive place <laughs> where I, I was just thinking like, if I hadn't read a galley of this book, if mm -hmm. I was finding out about it for the first time, if I was sitting um, in the audience where women were telling their stories, I, I think I think I would have so many feelings, mm -hmm. yeah. um, all of them important to bring up. But, like, I, I think this starts a conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, literally, though, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Like, literally, you're, you're at the bookstore right. and the women in the audience are like, fuck. Right, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, that I definitely have thought about. Um, and I think – I do think I was sort of thinking – 
um, both about that and about other potential aspects and sort of for all of it, my approach is usually um, like be well prepared or as well prepared as right, I can right, be right. with, you know, um, however many hours, waking hours there are in a day. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, I should say, very jet lagged right now. So like, for oh, instance, yeah. if you had said, how many hours are there in a day? Shelly, I would pause <laughs> before I could answer that question. Um, so, so yeah, as well prepared as I can be, um, especially right now, but, and then sort of, um, try to respond with honesty and, and heart, um, to, to a moment, you know. That's lovely. Um, a, a part of the show that I enjoy that that's going to be a little different here is we we talk about what you've been reading or mm-hmm. what maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the contributors' books. Ooh, I, I have a list of um, names <laughs> yes. here just no, in I case. Remember the contributors, okay, um, for sure. But I'm thinking. Um, this is like the – for what I've been reading, this is like the worst time to ask me because I just came back from Israel having spent two months in Tel Aviv and that's the only time. So Hebrew is my first language. Right, English right, is right. my second. Um, and as someone who lives and writes in her second language, I find it necessary to pretty much avoid my first language. I mean not really but avoid it as much as I can um, in in terms of – reading and writing because it does affect my work very much when I don't. Sure. And so when I go for a prolonged time, like I just did now, that's kind of the only time when I let myself read in Hebrew. And so now I've been really in the last two months just reading. I've been reading in English too, but I've ma- mainly been reading in Hebrew and books that haven't been, to my knowledge at least, been translated. So I can give you a bunch of titles okay. in Hebrew now right, right, that right. I'm excited about. Um, but very few people probably in your audience would even understand what I'm saying. So things that I have been reading in the past year, um, I don't know if this is maybe even over a year, but the first thing that comes to mind is Fever Dream. Oh, um, yes. Samantha Schweblin's book, yes. just because I uh, I was a judge on the what's it called the Tournament of Books. Oh, I was too. Shelly, on is the that, same? Yeah, were we on the same year? <laughs> we were on the same year, so that's <laughs> hilarious. Amazing. I probably knew that at some point and <laughs> forgot. Um, but so is that? So that's more than a year ago then. But oh, yes, but yeah. that's I, um, it counts. It counts. It, it still counts because that's the first thing that that popped into my. I also don't think you said in the last year, so I gave myself that yeah, restriction you, just now. <laughs> Okay. Be free, Shelley. Um, all right. What else? Um, um, but yes, I also – I, what? let's talk about that for a second because okay. I, I love that we were judges for the Tournament of Books. How, they're like, what, 15? Something like that, I think. Judges. And but I was the judge on the last round. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, I mean the one before. So there's the last, last when we were all judging, right? Mm-hmm. And then the mm-hmm. one before that, I just lucked out. And so I got to like choose Fever Dream to go up to, what was to it move against? to the, Do you remember? Um, yeah, Saunders. I mean, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Right? It's a big deal. I mean, and that book was great. George, was. Saunders. Oh, for George sure. Saunders is a very talented he's, writer. Think, oh, we're going to see some good things from him, him, I think. Yeah, he's going to be a big name one day. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and I do. I'm a huge Saunders fan, but I was just so blown away by Fever Dream and felt like it was doing in a way that's on a craft level even hard to unpack or dismantle or explain away. But Well, that's why the title is that, so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. That is true. And it is so that title really actually captures the 
sort of DNA of the book, right? The spirit yeah. of it. Um, but it, de- you're, you are, you were in a fever dream. Like I could not put it down. In a different it, place. It was the creepiest book maybe that I've ever read. Uh-huh. I was just like haunted by it in the best way. Um, so yeah, I, I just had such strong feelings about that book, which is why how, however long later, it's the first thing that popped into my head. Um, what else? Vanishing Twins. Do you know that book? Leah Dietrich, I think. Um, it's a memoir. It's a gorgeous oh. memoir um, about an open marriage. It's always so hard to say what a book is about. It's like whatever you're right, doing, you're right, being right. reductive in some way. You're being an asshole in some way. Um, but uh, because it's also about dance and art and, you know, it's about so many things. But but I would say for me it was predominantly about um, an open marriage, which is a topic that I've written about as well, right. both nonfiction and fiction. Um, so I related to that, but it's also just a gorgeous book. Huh. Yeah, now, now I'm sort of realizing that I just gave one fiction, one nonfiction. So in the spirit of Indelible, I should definitely add a poetry yes, recommendation. Yeah, there you go. And I have actually been um, been obsessed with this poem by Deborah Landau, um, not a contributor in Indelible, but an incredible poet. Um, and that poem is called Soft Targets. I've just been like reading it and rereading it this past two weeks. And so that um, made me revisit her book, uh, The Uses of the Body. Oh. And so that's another... Um, also, you know that, that the Paris Review, um, the, the, <laughs> the series that, um, the, the literary journal that mocks your, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. uh, podcast in their, that's why they're, Is they in chose conversation that name. With. <laughs> that's a better way of putting it. Yes. Um, they are in conversation with this podcast and they also have, um, that, what is it called? Women at Work? Yeah. Is that, yeah, is that yeah. right? Those anthologies. Um, and I just love those sort of going back to what we were just saying about product and process, like how important it is as a writer, as mm-hmm. an artist to be in process. I think when I forget that in some way, um, or even if my body forgets that or my heart forgets that, like those are books that I go back to just even to read a few quotes from one of them. Um, I mean, just their whole sort of art of fiction um, from all the many years, but specifically the Women at Work. Yeah. Um, um, it's just an incredible two volumes, I think, unless there's, a, there's a, maybe a third I don't know about. But the two that I have are just incredible. So that's another one. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. So and much, I Paris. hope the tour goes so well and that I this book too. hits other people like it hit me right in the gut. Thank you so much, Maris. It was so lovely being here and talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.